Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 187. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Alvinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Father, we ask tonight that you will bless us and um, give us a fruitful study. Um, we know that um, things aren't going to just automatically make sense to us. We've got to apply ourselves as we're studying the Word, as we're pressing in, as we're making application as we're relying on the Holy Spirit to reveal the truths to us. Um, it's hard work um, studying the Bible, but there's so much for us there. This, the, the, the reward is, is, is lasting. It's, it's good fruit. And um, uh, your words are, are very life. It's, it's the, there are very um, um, instructions for living. That's what I mean. Um, and in them, we know that we have found our Messiah, Yeshua, and we're so thankful that you have brought us into this relationship with your son. Continue to fill us with your spirit and give us a heart to do your will. Help us to have a heart for lost, um, a burden for those who are um, lost and dying. Give us um, supernatural, um, uh, what we might call uh, meetings or or uh, chances to be able to meet people and to um, share a witness with them and to just give a word of testimony and, and um, um, share Jesus with them. So... Um, continue to heal us and raise us up and strengthen us as communities. And we'll give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Thank you, everyone, for joining me for these live internet studies. My name is Arlben Lyman Hanavi, and we've got two 30 minute segments in front of you tonight. The first segment is the uh, Matthew 9 14 through 17. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? Or the short working title is Judaism v. Christianity. And um, the second 30-minute segment is given over to an apologetic work known as uh, Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, where we've been having this ongoing discussion. It's going on, it'll go on three years, it'll hit three years this year, I think this fall, if I can drag it out. Um, but we're actually near the very end. We're uh, working our way through a section on who or what is the Holy Spirit, and we've been looking at... Um, verses that are related to the Holy Spirit, just scriptural passages that we brought up in section two or paper two of these three of this three papers, three part uh, study. So if you can make it for that, that would be great. But otherwise, let's jump right back into our Matthew study. If you can see on my screen right now, I've got Matthew 9, 14 through 17 pulled up. Remember this particular passage with Yeshua's statements about fasting and about um the uh patch and the garment and the wine and the wineskins this particular parable shows up in mark and in luke and the luke reading is where we actually get the word parable and a lot of detail shows up there i might even bring that into our study um one of these times i'm pretty sure i will i just won't do it tonight but let me read the relevant uh section first this is out of the esv you can just follow along on your screen Starting in verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. And then the final verse, verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. 
I think I will read the Luke passage next week because I just remembered some resources that I was um, working through and looking at this week. Um, it became it, it has become aware to, to my attention as I'm reading through this over and over again and studying it that um, there are two primary issues that we could look at this passage through two primary um, methods of of uh, interacting with the passage. One of these methods we can call the allegorical uh, version of looking at the passage where we take the words that the master left us and because we don't have explicit um, explanation, right? He doesn't explain to us exactly what he's meaning by these parables. We could then begin to allegorize or um, uh, uh, speculate what they mean and come up with some assign some meanings to the words themselves. That's what I mean by allegories, kind of like turn, turn a sermon into it. And that's one way that historic Christianity has interacted with these words. Another way that we could simply read this passage is to take it for its um, moral or ethical meaning and look at the primary message behind the, the, the anecdotes or the parables. And instead of allegorizing it, just kind of take it almost the exact opposite. Take it at face value and just see if there is a general overall kind of lesson um, that's being um, portrayed by the use of the, the, the um, mechanism of, of parable or something like that. And so I haven't really touched on what could possibly be simply the overall simplistic message. I've always been kind of hitting the allegory because that's when you read Christian commentaries on this passage, most of them are going to jump into the allegory. And the allegory is this. If you take the wedding uh, uh, feast where um, Yeshua is trying to tell them, hey, the bridegroom is with you. Why should you mourn? You take that along with the um, piece of unshrunk cloth on the old garment and the new wine and the old wine. If you take all that together, the allegory is that Yeshua has finally arrived as the long-awaited Messiah. And that's the wedding feast part. And Yeshua is putting himself into that role as the bridegroom. And Israel is the bride in this wedding. And God, of course, is officiating at God the Father, right? He's, he's marrying off his son, and he's got a bride chosen for her, which obviously would be Israel, right? Matthew was written within the purview of kind of Jewish worldview, Jewish mindset, um, uh, getting the Jewish people's attention. Um, Mark, I think, is written from a Gentile perspective. Luke, I can't remember how uh, Luke's perspective is. And then John, I think was, it's been said that John is written to prove that Jesus is the Messiah or Jesus is divine or uh, the Son of God, Son of Man, those types of things. But when we're talking about Matthew, we definitely have a Jewish audience kind of in view. So it would make no sense for the wedding analogy or the wedding um, um, part of the uh, parable to not include Israel, right? It would make really no sense to say that this is a wedding between the church and Jesus, even though that is the allegory or the, the metaphor that gets carried over as we read a little further into the New Testament. And if we keep going with that, and we start looking at the piece of unshrunk cloth and old garment, and then link that really directly with the old wine, I'm not sorry, the new wine and the old wineskins, Christian commentators have chosen to interpret this allegorically as definitely Yeshua 
has brought the promises of the Old Testament into focus, but with the purpose of actually radically un, uh, unlift, un, undoing um, the um, commitment to keep the law of Moses or um, the Old Testament ways and things like that. The bottom line is this passage or this parable has been interpreted allegor allegorically into what we call today as replacement theology. The Jews are out, the, the Gentiles are in. The, uh, Israel is out, the church is in. Uh, the Torah is out, the New Testament is in, or Old Testament is out, New Testament is in. Law of Moses is out, Law of Christ is in. Uh, you know, Old Covenant is out, New Covenant is in. Whatever terminology you're familiar with, those are the um, stakes. Uh, those those are the, uh, the the issues that are at stake here. And so, what we have is Jesus basically bringing some form of theology that is incompatible with the existing worldview or existing religious um, perspective. So that's why he has to say that the if we just try to take what I'm bringing and sew it onto the old code of Judaism. Um, you're going to have a rip, and it's going to make a mess. So you can't do that. Also, if you take my new teaching, I'm I'm speaking the allegory that Christian commentators choose opt opt for. If you take my new teaching about the kingdom of heaven and and the radical transformation, uh, you know, the new covenant and things like that, and you try to just simply pour it into old wine skins like Judaism. It's going to be incompatible. It's not going to work. Um, my new wine is going to burst those old wineskins. And so um, you got a problem. So what we need to do is we need to take this old worldview, this old religious system, and unfortunately, it has to go. It has to go. It's not, It's we can't simply pour my new theology into the, that old system. So I'm going to bring something new. It's radically new. And the, the Gentile Christian church kind of picked up on this allegory and ran with it to an absurd um, to an absurd level. And so um, Judaism felt the sting, um, bowed out, uh, Gentile Christianity uh, kind of rose to the forefront. And now for the last 2000 years, that's essentially the default position and religion that is dominant is Gentile forms of Christianity, where it's very difficult to retrace the Jewish roots of Christianity in many places where Christianity is um is taught and practiced and things like that. Um, I was raised fundamental Baptist. And if you asked the independent fundamental Baptist, at least at the church that I went to, um, what do you think about Israel? If you ask your, uh, the pastor there, what do you think about Israel? What do you think about the law of Moses? There wasn't a lot of discussion about that. Um, in fact, I grew up never even really realizing who Israel was. We just didn't study the Old Testament. I know that's not true of every church, but at least it was true in the church that I went to. So wasn't until later in life that I went back and read the Bible for myself and my eyes were just popped wide open. Like, wow, who are these people known as Israel for? What is this, what is this law called the law of God, the law of Moses? And what's its relevancy for me in my life today as a believer? So um, so that's the allegory. But if we also take this passage and just mine it for its kind of um common sense value without any allegory, then if you take all three of the um elements, the uh pieces, and put them together and compare them basically in verse 15 that's part a of of three parts part uh, verse 16 is kind of part b and then verse 17 is like part c 
If you take all three of these parts, A, B, and C, and you kind of look at them and compare the practical, the common sense value of each, basically Yeshua is saying to um, those who questioned him, you can't change people's opinion. They're always going to really just do what makes sense. Um, they're going to do things that are practical and um, just don't fight that. For instance, um, since the bridegroom is here, why would anyone mourn? I mean, it just doesn't make sense, right? It's That's nonsense. So, of course, my disciples are going to not fast. They're not going to mourn. Why? Because who, who mourns and fasts at a wedding, right? That doesn't make any sense. So, there's like a common sense um, challenge here from Yeshua's perspective, as if he's kind of looking at the people around him going, duh, well, wouldn't you also um, rejoice and feast since it's a wedding? Why would you fast? And then moving with that kind of suggestion, he Yeshua offers the B and C parts. He's like, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Yeshua's like, um, would anyone put a piece of untrunk cloth in an old garment? And of course, the the answer is no, right? And why why wouldn't you? Because duh, common sense. People are gonna do the common sense thing, right? You don't put a piece of untrunk cloth in an old garment, right? which fits in with the common sense answer about mourning and fasting at a, at a wedding, right? Um, you, do, you do the right thing. You do the common sense thing. And then moving right along to verse 17, the C part. Also, um, is anyone here going to um, put new wine into old wineskins? Everyone scratches their head and thinks about it and says, well, no. And Yeshua would say, well, why wouldn't you? And the, the crowd would say, well, because it doesn't make sense. It's, 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 you know, common sense implies that we should put new wine into um, fresh wineskins, right? So that you can keep them both. I mean, why why would anyone do something stupid and put new wine in old skins? So it's almost like Yeshua is simply arguing from the, the common sense practical perspective. He's just, he's not really teaching anything deeper other than, hey, don't slam my boys and throw them under the bus, speaking about his disciples. They're just doing the right, they're just doing the common sense thing, right? Come on. I mean, I'm with them. And um, why wouldn't they? You know, so in other words, the anchor to the common sense issue is the first part about the wedding guests mourning as long as the bridegroom's with them. That that question. And that is the anchor. And then the other two elements, the B and C, or if you read the Luke account, there's actually a D, a, a fourth one, um, about a question about people preferring the old wine over the new wine. And so um um this is really the choice that we have when we're reading through these passages. Because if you read right down into the rest of the passage, then he doesn't even explain. You know, like like in a parable, he would say, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like, uh, 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 you know, blah, 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 blah. And then the disciples kind of look at him and say, Master, what, what, is, what do you mean by blah, blah, blah? And then Yeshua would say, you know, do you not understand? Uh, you know, the, and then he'll kind of break out, break down the elements of the parable, but he doesn't do that here. He doesn't do that here. So when we read the Luke passage next week, be careful to watch for this fourth, you know, A, B, C, and D, this fourth part, which if the allegory is accurate, that Jesus is here to uproot the old and replace it with new, well, then in the allegorical, right, the allegorical aspect or the way that the, the most Christian pastors are spinning this passage, if we read the Luke account, it poses serious challenges for the allegorical perspective. I'm not going to do that tonight.
but we'll do that next week. What we have been doing is we've been working our way through David Stern's commentary on this passage. David Stern is a Messianic Jew, and he wrote the complete Jewish Bible, and it's complete Jewish, um, what is it, the, uh, the, the Jewish New Testament commentary. So originally he wrote, he put out a, a Jewish New Testament alone. I, actually, I think he originally started with just the book of John and wrote it from a Jewish perspective, a Jewish worldview, a Messianic Jewish perspective just translating it using verbiage and terminology and nomenclature that Jewish people would be maybe feel a little bit more comfortable reading. And then he branched out and did the whole New Testament, and he called it the Jewish New Testament. And then he wrote a commentary to justify all of his um, stylistic changes and theological changes to his translation. And then he eventually wrote a, um, a full Bible from Old Testament to New Testament called the Complete Jewish Bible. All right, something arms, yeah, something like that. Well, anyway, um, we've been reading his commentary, and uh, let's just pick up the comment, the uh, the uh, paragraph right where you can see the highlight, and uh, keep reading there. Uh, this was where we left off last week. This last paragraph, I'll just read one more time. He says the early Messianic Jews of of Yeshua's day did adapt Messianic faith to Judaism, but the later Gentile Church did not. So we're talking about this challenge of what do we do with Yeshua's radical form of teaching was it so radical that it ne- that it necessitated a disposal or disruption of the Jewish worldview and a um, disposal or a getting rid of the law of Moses so that we can replace it with something new I say no I say no and David Stern agrees with me that no this wouldn't really fit in with the theology of the uh, promises that are found in throughout the Tanakh about God sending a new covenant to Israel, it does not say in the bringing of the new covenant that God is going to replace the old covenant with the new covenant. Indeed, God says through the mouth of Jeremiah, the prophet, when the new covenant comes, I, God, am going to pour my spirit out upon you, place him within you, and this new covenant experience is going to result in you, Israel, corporately keeping my laws, not disregarding them and turning away from them. So David Stern's working from that perspective. He believes, like I do, that the Jewish person interacting with Jesus in his day has to make a choice. And this is the section that I'm calling old man new man and messianic judaism the question is put forth is it possible to be a jewish person and retain your commitment to the torah and keep practicing a jewish lifestyle in the time of yeshua um what was the the essential challenge of yeshua's message is it to get rid of the law of moses so that we can bring in the law of jesus or was it instead to get rid of the old man so that we can allow the new man to be born and to, to shine and to live for God. I say it's the second one. I think that what Yeshua is talking about is a death to self so that the new man can be born alive, anew, afresh, and this new man will be empowered to be able to do the will of God. And so um, uh, turning right back around as a Jew and continuing to be loyal to the law of God, yet doing it now with a renewed sense of um, uh, love for God, love for your man, love for Messiah, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to actually walk in God's ways. So the early Messianic Jews, they actually did adapt Messianic faith to Judaism. They took their belief in Jesus and they adapted it, meaning they 
took what was radically new about this new covenant message, the new heart, the circumcised heart, the the the, the new the born again experience, and they took Judaism and they had they they were able to make a um a religion known as messianic Judaism, right? Or we could call it early Christianity. Either way, it was a it was a worldview, a religion, a lifestyle that was still um, very much attached to um, the original um, foundational aspects of God's law, law and things like that. Uh, even to the point of keeping festival. I'm sorry, keeping um, um, uh, sacrifices at the temple. Even though you're a believer, right? Go back and read through the book of Acts and watch what Paul does in Acts chapter 21. So it wasn't until the church began to grow uh, to the point where it became a burden for the messianic element, the messianic faith, and the Jewish part to, to stay together. It became um, very difficult for Gentiles entering into this um, body to identify with Judaism safely and comfortably um, and cohesively. And uh, Jewish authorities who didn't embrace the Messianic part of the faith, right? Uh, those those uh, Jewish leaders who didn't believe in Jesus, they actively fought to uh, get rid of the Gentile elements. Uh, there was, you know, a lot of sociological struggle going on. And eventually, it couldn't hold together in that form. And so the Messianic faith part and the Judaism part, they ripped apart from one another. And what we ended up with was a Messianic faith that was, as David Stern calls it, devoid of um, its Jewish roots. And so he continues to say, um, these uh, forms of Gentile Christianity instead, they didn't retain their Messianic aspect. What it means by that is their Jewish aspect. I'm sorry, they didn't retain their their a Jewish element, but they instead became paganized precisely because the Tanakh, that is the Old Testament, it was forgotten or underemphasized. And we say paganized because when you have a, a power shift um, and a void is created, then something has to sweep in and fill the void. And so early Christianity um, began to swell in its numbers. And um, in the absence of the law of God dictating, the law of Moses dictating how we should live our lives. And without a proper New Testament canonized yet in that in that interim period between the kind of the, hey, we're not under the law of Moses anymore, but hey, we don't have a New Testament put together just yet. Then there was a lot of speculation as to, well, can we just create new traditions? Can we and we um, do we have the um, authority on earth to uh, come up with our own kind of holy days and and halakha and group policies and um, perspectives that meet our needs? They don't have to meet the needs of Jewish people, but they're going to meet our needs based on our allegorical and theological interpretations of of um, the sayings of Jesus and um, the parts of the Bible that we did want to keep from the Jews. And how can we live our lives as people of God without resembling the synagogue? You know, how can we keep uh, Passover without doing it on the, you know, Nisan the 14th? Uh, um, how we, can we continue to meet as a people group of God in the synagogues, or I'm sorry, not in the synagogues, but in our church homes and things like that without doing it on the Sabbath day? Can we switch days and still come up with reasons? Hey, so these were some of the things that happened. Um, eventually, um, full-blown paganism crept in as well. But we don't have to. We don't have to put everything on the blame. Uh, uh, lay everything at the blame of paganism because some of those things were actually 
I think paganism uh, copied Christianity. Um, in the past, I used to think that the church copied paganism, but now as I begin to research history just a little bit more, I think um, the church actually had some some of the original ideas, uh, like uh, something some of the things that have to do with Easter and such, and um, maybe not so much Christmas. That's really the flip flop. But uh, uh, the point is. You know, in today's modern Christianity, there are elements of paganism, and it's likely that maybe there was just some syncretization between the two. But David Stern continues, he says that Messianic Jews today are once again trying to bring New Testament faith back to its Jewish roots. So that's where we left off, um, basically, um, last week, right? Let's continue reading in David Stern. Uh, let's start right there. Uh, David Stern continues, he says, whereas in verse 16, so remember, there's three elements. There's the wedding feast element to Yeshua's allegory or parable. That's A. There's the uh, wineskin element. That's the wine and wine. I'm sorry. There's the, uh, the cloth and the patch element. That's B. And then there's the wine and wineskin element. And so that's C. Let's deal now with the, uh, the wineskin and wine and wineskin elements. Uh, so in verse 16, that's what we're going to look at here. All right, uh, David Stern says, whereas in verse 16, Messianic faith has to be adapted to Judaism, right? Um, that's the, uh, the patch and the, um, uh, the cloth. Here it is in Judaism, in verse 16, speaking of the wine, it's Judaism which must be adjusted to Messianic faith. Notice it almost sounds like, wait a minute, this can't fit, right? Why would Yeshua give these two allegories or parables um, when they're kind of flip-flopped. And if you go back and read it, um, let me just click on it again. In verse uh, 16, he talks about putting a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. So the patch is the part of the um, story there that has to do some adjusting. The garment itself is not going to shrink anymore. It's old. But the patch has the choice. Can I shrink should I shrink or should I stay the way I am unshrunk? Okay, so the adjustment has to take place at the patch. But if you look at the verse 17, which David Stern is going to talk about, when he talks about new wine and old wineskins, it's the wineskins that need to make the adjustment. The wine itself doesn't have to change. So it's we're still talking uh, some some challenge here. There's still some adjustment either on one element or the other. But notice that, he, that Yeshua flip-flopped the example. I don't know if you caught that there or not, right? So either way, uh, we've got some work ahead of us and we're talking about interpreting. So let's uh, keep reading what David Stern uh, says. So um, he has, he says in uh, here in verse 17, Judaism is the one that has to be adjusted to Messianic faith. If one tries to put new wine, which is Messianic faith, into old wineskins, that is traditional Judaism, the faith is lost and Judaism is ruined. Notice David Stern's working from the allegorical perspective, right? Again, he's not working from this practical common sense. Hey, no one does this and that and this and that because that just doesn't make sense, right? Common sense. Um, so David Stern's working from the idea that uh, Yeshua has an allegory. Uh, David Stern says, but if Judaism is freshly prepared, reconditioned, that is, so, to, so that it can accommodate trust in Yeshua, the Messiah, then both the faith and the renewed Judaism, known as Messianic Judaism, both of them are preserved. And indeed, I've been challenging us with the idea that if we go back over to the parable and look, if we um, read read into verse 16, where Yeshua was talking about the patch and the piece of cloth, the idea is that 
you want to keep the cloth. You're not out to buy a new piece of clothing. Otherwise, why would you buy the patch? The idea is that you buy a patch so that you can retain your favorite article of clothing that's valuable to you, right? Has sentimental value or whatever. You're buying a patch because you want to keep it or you don't have the uh, financial means to buy a new uh, cloth altogether, but you do have enough money to buy a patch. Either way, it works itself out to the same uh, common denominators that you're going to retain the cloth, right? That's why you're patching it in the first place. Otherwise, you would just toss it out or give it to the goodwill and go out and buy a brand new one or something like that. And likewise with verse 17 and the wine and the wineskins. The very last clause says, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Notice at the very end, if we recondition the wineskins using the word fresh there in the Greek, which is not the same as the Greek word for new when it talks about wine. So be aware of that. Different Greek word. And, you, and David, I'm not elaborating now because David Stern is going to hit it. Um, Yeshua says that if we recondition the wineskin, then we can actually end up with both the new wine and the old wineskin being preserved. So in the second example, again, we the, the, the goal is not to replace one of those elements. The goal is to recondition one of the elements so that both parts are kept, right? You go out and spend the money on the patch, and it, and it pulls away from the cloth, and you ruin both the patch and the cloth, right? You're in a worse place than you were when you began. You, ruin, you have a ruined patch and a ruined cloth, and no money to buy either one. Same thing about the new wine and the old wineskins. If, if you just instantly introduce the two together without any conditioning, then you ruin the wineskin, and you lose the new wine, and thus you're out money for both of those. So in Yeshua's parables, he's trying to optimally work towards keeping both. So that's what David Stern is introducing or reminding us of, is, hey, uh, if we're talking about Messianic Judaism and introducing Yeshua's Messianic faith, shouldn't we want to retain Yeshua's faith and Judaism instead of replacing Judaism with Christianity or something like that? So David Stern continues. He says, this understanding is undergirded by the writer's careful choice of words. And here we get into the slightly technical. The word new, which is the Greek naos, wine, and fresh, which is the Greek word kainos, wineskins. So we have new wine and fresh wineskins, not new wine and new wineskins like some translations would have you to believe. And why does this matter? Let David Stern explain. He says naos means new in respect to time, implying immaturity or lack of development. Kainos, by comparison, means new or renewed in respect to quality, contrasting with old or not renewed and implying superiority. Now, in reality, if you go look up these two Greek words in any Bible dictionary or lexicon or some type of word aid, word helps uh, types of um, dictionaries and things like that, um, concordance, whatever, sometimes you're going to find that these words um, naos and kainos are used somewhat in an overlapping uh, kind of synonymous fashion. And I allow that as well. But at the end of the day, always the words are going to be fine. They're going to find their greatest meaning in context. Indeed, context is king. So um, as we're working with these, this explanation, and I'm drawing our study to a close with this last paragraph here, let's continue to be aware of the fact that 
um, the writers, when they wrote their stories or penned scripture, they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And God is the one who ultimately preserved which terminology got um, recorded and copied over and over again to where we now end up with the manuscripts that we have uh, using the word and verbiage that we have. I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to split hairs over just one or two words and, and build our theology just on one or two words. That's not what I want to do. That's that's not a very safe practice of Bible trans, Bible interpretation. But we can't ignore the choice of words. That's the point I'm trying to make. We can't just say, well, they're really just the same thing, so there's really no need to um, uh, recognize their differences. No, um, sometimes the context allows us to see that perhaps words were chosen very carefully for a specific reason. Finishing up with David Stern's um, paragraph here, and we'll pick this up next week. Uh, David Stern says, Old wineskins have lost their strength and elasticity so that they cannot withstand the pressure of new wine still fermenting. Although, he goes on to say, an old wineskin can be restored to service, watch this, if its useful qualities are renewed. So, if, in closing, if Judaism is the old wineskin, then if its useful qualities are renewed, if we take the parts of Judaism that are properly attached to the pure word of God, and that have not been polluted and tainted and misunderstood by the, by the um, uh, years and years of, um, of uh, strange rabbinic interpretation, the, the, uh, the, 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 the uh, customs, the traditions, the halakha, the poison of the rabbis, um, uh, you know, the policies that were uh, in contradistinction or contradiction to what God really truly meant, right? The blindness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and things like that. If we realize that Judaism was actually built upon the foundation of God's word and um, the original foundational elements of God's word as laid down by the law of Moses were pure, right? God's word was perfect in its original um, delivery. There was nothing wrong with what he gave Moses, it was the people who perverted the understanding and the application, right? As time went on, and just couldn't do what God was asking, because they 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 were they were um, old men, right? They they needed a transformation radically. But if we recall that Judaism still had some of those, then we can begin to reach into those um, uh, foundational aspects and uh, bring those useful qualities out and renew those and begin to um, use those to undergird Messianic Judaism. We'll pick this up next week, but that'll do it now for um, our Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture congregation, Kayla Tunvala Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Say Torah. 
Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity and pick up where we left off. We've been working our way through this um, list that I've got pulled up in front of you. It's put together by Carm, and it's a list that is really focusing on the Holy Spirit only. And what it is, is a um, review of the passages that were introduced in paper two, where we're noticing how God's um, interaction with mankind reveals God's complexity and God's um, uh, um, personhood. Um, but at the same time, we also see that we've got one God. So there are verses that sometimes seem to be um, having an ontological uh representation of God, ontological meaning dealing with um, the nature of being, um, kind of like if we were to ask the question, what is God made up of? You know, what are the sum of his parts? How is he composed, right? What are the ingredients that make up God? Um, that's what I mean by ontological debate, right? Who, uh, you know, what is he? What is he? Is he one? Is he two? Is he three? Is he five? Um, but other times when we read two passages, we're really just dealing with what we might call the economic aspect of the Godhead, the persons of God, the economic trinity versus the ontological trinity all over again. When we say economic, we're talking about how does God's dealings with mankind impact us as humans? Um, how is God uh, working in the earth today? You know, what, what are his assignments? Um, and so we look at God the Father doing this. We look at God the Son doing that. We look at the Holy Spirit doing something else. And we begin to... Um, corroborate all the data and we begin to put it on the table and we see that there are words and terms and phrases that otherwise would apply to one person but now get applied to someone else so it's like um you know in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth but then when we get to the new testament we find creation language being assigned to the eternal word of god who became flesh known as yeshua and thus yeshua is given creatorship along with god and yet as God, not along with God as a second God, right? We, we're always anchored on the idea that there's one God, and yet we're challenged and stretched 
in the New Testament and the New Covenant scriptures and the apostolic writings with this idea that further revelation and greater clarity is now being revealed to us through the kind of progressive nature of God's unfolding his revelation to us so that what started out as information limitation in earlier texts now becomes elaborated. And this principle of information limitation or progressive way of revealing things is, I think, expressed well in the book of Hebrews, the very first few verses where I'm paraphrasing, but uh, long ago and in times past, God spoke to us uh, through the through the prophets and through the fathers, but now he's speaking to us through his son. Notice that it says long ago, but now. This reveals kind of the progressive nature of God's message to humans. God didn't just open up the, the fire hydrant and out gushes all of this information about who God is, who his son is, who the Holy Spirit is, who the church is, all this stuff, and came gushing out at, at the early um, humans, and then they had to try and figure out what to make of all that. Instead, God started off slowly and smallly, smallly, that's not a word, uh, slowly and small with, you know, a little bit of information, kind of like seminal form, kernel form, um, and, you know, or foundation form or outline form, if you want to use that, whatever analogy you can fill in the blank, but, and then he fleshed it out, right? He began to add more and more detail, more and more and more and more and built on that. And he, without really disrupting or changing his mind about the older pieces, the older information he kept building on that. That's what we're working with, right? We have verses that kind of build on one another. So let's look at this. We're not working our way through this um, section with the uh, verses now. What I've done is I've been um, walking our way through this excursus of Romans chapter 8, where we've been looking at um, the spirit elements in Paul's letter here in Romans. Romans chapter 8 is Paul's very concentrated discussion on the Holy Spirit. So let's finish this tonight. And I've also brought in this um, uh, commentary from a gentleman by the name of, of uh, Roberto Pereira. I think it's Roberto Pereira. Pereira, yeah, Pereira. And um, he wrote a commentary that uh, has uh, some insights that I find uh, helpful and fascinating. So let's finish the Roman study first. Romans chapter 8. I believe I stopped down near verse um, 11 and 12, uh, somewhere around there. Um, so, uh, let's just pick it up. Let's see if you live according to the flesh and die, but if the spirit you put to death to Jesus' body, you will live. For all who is spirited by spirits are, no, nope, I read verse 14, uh, I read verse 15, I remember, and uh, I think I read verse, I think maybe we stopped with verse 15, but if not, we'll just pick up our study right there. Paul speaking to primary believers, to brothers, right? But this would, like any pastor, include unbelieving elements in the church, right? In the, in, in, within the viewing and reading of his letter. Paul says, For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And notice the heavy spirit activity in his language. Elsewhere in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, Paul's going to say, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so we have the spirit of his, of, of his son being sent to our hearts, but now we have the spirit of adoption, which would kind of make sense since um, fam familial language is in view here. Father, son, adoption, things like that. And we've been challenged by this idea that for, for Paul, the spirit is all the, at, at all the same time, 
it's God's Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, right? The very Spirit of God, who is the Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, the Spirit is equated with um, the risen Messiah who has come to dwell within our hearts, right? Jesus dwells in us. And yet Paul would have no problem explaining that God dwells in us. And yet he, at the same time, would have no problem explaining that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so this spirit discussion in Paul's mind is all wrapped up together without confusing the um, discussion. Uh, there's one God, one spirit, and yet there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I know those words don't show up in the Bible. My detractors are going to remind me of that when they watch this video. Hey, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that, those are terminology that doesn't show up in the Bible. Yeah, 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 I know that. But the concepts of one God and yet three persons or three um, uh, uh, um, three characters that we can interact with, uh, one being, but three three persons, right? Even the word persons doesn't show up in the Bible. So we have to, we, we, we assign words and terms to concepts um, that aren't there in the Bible. Paul has no problem describing uh, our interaction with this God who's one and yet complex at the same time. And that's the whole point of reading through these passages is to appreciate that if there was just one God who had a single identity and he didn't have the interaction at three persons level that we are familiar with describing in Trinitarian discussions, then it wouldn't really make sense for Paul to keep switching back and forth between who's dwelling within us. He would simply just default and say God's in us. And that's it. He, there would be no need for him to say that God sent the spirit of his son or the spirit of Christ in us or something like that. I mean, whose spirit is it? Is God's spirit or is it his son's spirit? I mean, make up your mind, Paul, right? Um, if there's only one God, then who is the spirit? Who is this son's spirit, uh, right? I mean, that that's the point I'm trying to make. In verse 16, Paul says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Again, this is the type of relationship that we have to have with God if we want to be counted as family members. If you count yourself a child of God, then you must surely know that the Spirit of God has taken up residency within you. The Spirit of Christ lives within you. The Holy Spirit lives within you. The answer is yes, who lives within us, right? Which one of those three? And this Spirit bears witness with our own spirit. You've got to have this self-examination. You've got to have this confirmation of your status as a child of God. If you're not in tune with the Holy Spirit, then something's wrong. And we talked earlier last week about how that the Spirit is going to help us um, live and lead lives that are pleasing to God, turning away from the old nature, saying no to the flesh. And when we say flesh there, we're not talking about this skin that's wrapped around my bones. We're talking about the old nature, the old volition, the old will, the old habits, the old um, uh, um, heartaches and headaches and hangups and holdups and all those things that, that, um, that permeated and characterized my life before I became a, a follower of Yeshua, right? What we might call the, the mindset of the world or the, the, the um, perspective of the world. Um, the old way of living, right? The old nature, the 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 man who is opposed to doing God's wills, the, the will, and the and opposed to serving his fellow man, right? Love God, love your neighbor. You can't do that under the old nature because you're going to always default into loving yourself. 
right? Um, that's just the way the old nature works. That's the way the flesh works. Paul says in verse 17, and if, and if children, right, then heirs, and if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we've said this before, and it's painful to say it, but the path of glorification is through suffering. Just ask Yeshua. He wasn't going to be glorified by the Father unless he was first crushed by the Father. I think it's, it's I seem to recall it's, um, it might have been um, the late, Billy Graham, who said something to the effect of, I know I'm going to butcher it, so I'm probably going to look it up and post it, paste it on to my post-production uh, video, but something to the effect of, God never fully uses a man until he first fully crushes that man. And the idea is that the, the, um, the, in, in God's program, the person has to die first before he can be utilized and be born again. It's the whole idea of a seed going into the earth and like yeshua says it can't bring forth any um tree or plant or anything like that until it, the seed first dies and it's the whole idea behind yeshua saying um what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul what will a man give for his own soul the idea is that you have to die in order to live paul says i now live because christ died right so I die in Messiah, and then Christ lives through me, and therefore the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. Paul, those are Paul's words again. If we want to be glorified in Christ, if we want to be glorified in God, then we've got to suffer with him. Yeshua said, you must take up your cross and follow me, right? And implying that there's this, this road to holiness is a road of suffering. I once heard um, Pastor John MacArthur say that, what's God's will for your life? And he looked at the crowd and he said, without batting an eye, he said, it's God's will that you suffer. And then he just stopped and let that sink in. And that's hard for us to hear, right? You're not going to hear that in every church. Um, but I appreciate his, um, his uh, matter-of-factness, right? Um, his candid, can candidness, is that the right word I wanted to use? His... his, his uh, act of being candid and just telling it like it is. It's God's will that you suffer. Yeah. Because it is God's will that you be glorified. And unfortunately, there's no glorification without suffering first. And that's what Paul is trying to let us know. And then he just kind of parks out on that for a little while. He says, you know, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in the Christian worldview, you work first and then you get paid later. And that's how it should work. Right? That's how it works in the ethical worldview, right? If I go get a job, <laughs> oh, please, Lord, let me go get a job. If I work a job, then the idea is at my employment, I'm supposed to do the work first, and then they're going to reward me with a paycheck. That's just how jobs work. You do the work first, you get paid later. That's how it works in the Bible as well. The work is hard, and yet the reward is great. And that's what Paul's trying to explain to us. It's only in the perverted kind of um, hell, um, what we might call, a, 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 I don't want to say Hellenistic, that's Greek. What I'm trying to say is hedonistic. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. It's only in the hedonistic lifestyle where we play first, have fun first, and we'll pay for it later, right? You know, drink yourself stupid and deal with the hangover in the morning, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, 
or tomorrow you die. That's the world's perspective. That's that's opposite the biblical worldview. That's opposite God's way of doing things. God's way, you work first, which includes suffering, and then glorification follows it, right? The reward comes later. God rewards the hard work that you did in this life with um, um, things that are worth rewarding, right? That's if you've built up things that are worth rewarding. Go back and read earlier in Romans uh, chapter, say, end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 and those parts of Romans. So let's make sure we got it right, right? Paul says, you know, if you compare it, if you've got your eyes set on the future and you've got your eyes set on the prize, which is the hope of glory right, that God's going to give to us and reward us, then this life's sufferings and uh, hard work is worth it. It's worth it. And you know what? It's not going to be all hard work. Um, God's not a, a glutton for punishment. He's not the fun police. Um, there's some, there's a lot of fun in this life too as well, if you know how to um, manage it and look for it. He continues, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's interesting that the whole sin um, dilemma that mankind finds him in has not only spilled over into the animal world, but it also now permeates the physical world as well. The whole creation, the whole universe is groaning under the weight of this sin dilemma that man introduced into the um, into the equation uh, way back in the book of Genesis when he disobeyed God. God said, don't eat of the tree. Uh, and man disobeyed, and now sin has been... Uh, brought into the picture and and it's reared its ugly head and now we have all the suffering in the world and all of the darkness and all of the pollution and the filthiness and it's not just the ugliness of sin like i said it's now permeated and and, and it corrupts uh the creation of god as well now everything's in a state of degeneration and and um dilapidation and everything's falling apart and this is a result of man bringing sin into the world one day paul's going to explain here all of this is going to uh, be reversed. It's going to be brought to an end. It's already been taken care of legally by Yeshua, by his death on the cross, but God's timetable hasn't allowed us to see the full effects of that yet. But one day, it will happen. And creation himself is, he's personifying it as if, he, as if creation had a voice here and a thought. It's waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So we've got an important part to play. We need to do our part as believers and sons of God still carrying along with that familial aspect. But remember, this is, a, this is a discussion not just about who we are in Messiah, uh, but how the Holy Spirit is the one that secures this promise for us and helps us to realize it and actualize it while we're here on earth waiting. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We, once we as children of God finally um, become who we actually already are, right, in promise form, in earnest form, if you want to call it that way, down payment has already been given by the Holy Spirit. But once we actually walk into that, then the whole creation itself is going to be liberated from this corruption, right? Newton's, what, which law? I can't remember the law of, the laws of thermodynamics that Newton described where there's, you know, entropy and everything is in a state of, of going from greater to lesser and being broken down uh, to its most common denominator and things like that. Well, one day that creation is going to 
be renewed and, and reinvigorated and reformed and refashioned. And God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, right? Go, go skip to the end of the book and read the book of Revelation and find out exactly what's in store for us as the children of God. It's glorious. Verse 22, we're moving along rapidly because we're going to finish this up tonight. I don't want to take another bite out of that other commentary, but I don't want to just gloss over all of this without giving it a little bit of um, a thought. Uh, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been grown in together in the pains of childbirth until now. Right now, he's going to use this analogy of, of bearing children. Those of you listening to my podcast and watching this YouTube video who are females and have had the um, blessing of being able to give birth to children, you know the analogy well. The pain comes first. The reward comes second, right? Childbirth doesn't happen without pain. At least I don't know of any that does. Part of the curse as well, right? Way back in the book of Genesis, childbirth is going to be a painful process for you women. And yet, what woman isn't really willing to go through that in order to bring a child into the world? We're not going to have a discussion over abortion and things like that. I know that's a whole separate discussion, and that'll derail my teaching at the moment. Just follow along with me. In Paul's analogy, the creation is like giving birth. It's 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 groaning to give birth um, to this new man, this 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 uh, a glorified um, creation that's coming. And so he says in verse twenty three, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we're also like this pregnant woman. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Um, I was having a discussion via um, uh, a co YouTube comments with a, a, a person who watched one of my videos and believes that God doesn't have any value for the physical. He's only interested in the spiritual. It's all about the spiritual. And I thought, wow, that, that smacks of Gnosticism um, and New Age teachings and things like that. But that can't be the case. Paul says here that we eagerly wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Yeah. In Paul's theology, the, 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 the flesh is important to God. He created the flesh. And so human physicality is important. Our bodies are going to be renewed. Our bodies are going to be transformed. But as far as I can tell, it'll be the same body. When I receive my resurrection body, as far as I can tell, the identity of that body will still be. You ready for it? Wait for it. Ariel. Yeah. I won't have an identity switch. Suddenly I go from male to female or something like that. Or, I, you know, I, I go into the resurrection as Ariel and I come out of the resurrection as Bob. Right? It doesn't work that way. So the point is, um, God has use for this body and it's a glorious use. And then he continues, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is, that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, right? Just common sense analogy that he's working from there. But if we hope for that which we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And patience is a gift from God to be able to hope and wait for and have faith in something that you don't see, right? Yeshua talked to Thomas and, um, you know, Yeshua, Thomas is like, I'm talking about doubting Thomas. Thomas is like, you know, I'm not going to believe until I put my finger into his side and I put my finger into the nail prints into his hands. And Yeshua's like, okay, fine. You want it? Here you go. And, you know, Yeshua, Thomas uh, performed the actions and he's like, you know, my Lord and my God or the Lord of me and the God of me, literally in the Greek. And Yeshua's response is really challenging. It's interesting. He says, you know, you've seen and you believe. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe, right? Our faith and our hope are anchored in things that we can't see with our natural eyes. And sometimes we can't even 
can't quite even put our, our spiritual eyes onto it, but we have this assurance from the Word of God, and the Spirit of God is, is pricking our hearts and telling us this is true. Wait for it, right? Wait with patience. You don't see it yet, but it's coming. And, and then back, jumping back into his spirit verbiage, Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, right? He helps us in our weakness. He knows what we're made of. Right? He knows our frame. He knows the, our composition. God is the one who created us. His Spirit knows us intimately. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but watch this, the Spirit himself. This is a very uh, strong Trinitarian passage, just to listen up. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Since we're talking about intercession, we're talking about at least three parties. We have party A, we have party B, and when we're talking about intercession, we have a third party introduced to help party A and party B uh, understand one another. That's intercession. That's that's kind of the role of um, of the Holy Spirit, and it's it's uh, uh, necessary for the Spirit to be separate from God in such a fashion as to allow Him, the Spirit, to intercede for us or on our behalf before the Father. Otherwise, what? Is Paul trying to imagine that God, who is a singular being without division, without person, right? He's, a, he's, a, he's not a complex unity like the uh, Unitarians describe, or like the Trinitarians describe. He's a singular unity with one identity, and he's a spirit, and yet he's interceding for us on behalf of his own spirit? So his spirit is interceding with who, with God? Is that is God schizophrenic? So it's, it makes more sense, and that's not the only reason why this passage should be interpreted as Trinitarian, but it makes more sense to um, understand that Paul is now come to the understanding that the Spirit of God is a person of God who can be sent from God, dispatched of God to do the will of God, and yet at the same time is fully divine himself. And so he knows the Spirit of God is fully God, and he's going to allude to that in the next uh, verse here where he says, verse 27, and he who searches the hearts, right? God is the one who's described as he who searches the hearts that we read about in other passages. He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So Paul's trying to say that God, he's the one who searches the hearts, God knows the mind of the Spirit. Notice the Spirit is given a mind in verse 27 of Romans chapter 8. If the Spirit were simply an impersonal force of God, like electricity, why would Paul describe the Spirit as having a mind? That doesn't make any sense. This language of having a mind, or language that we read about elsewhere, where the Holy Spirit can be grieved or lied to, like in the book of Acts and things like that. This terminology is personhood terminology. We borrow the language from our experience as humans, right? I can be lied to. I can be grieved. I have a mind. God has personality. Therefore, God can be lied to. God can be grieved. God has a mind. Well, the spirit is no different. He's a person. He's not an it. Just get that out of your head that he's an it. He's a he. And it's better if you start calling him a he. And yet here again, we see this intercession. The mind of the spirit uh, Paul says, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We've got party A, which is us, 
We've got party B, which is God. And now we've got this intercessor, which is the Holy Spirit. He's interceding for us. He's interceding for the saints on behalf of us, right back to God, according to the will of God. So um, that's Paul's nomenclature. That's the way he describes uh, God's uh, actions, right? And then in verse 28, as we're finish, finishing up, and it doesn't look like I'm going to have time for that gentleman's commentary, which is fine. We'll look at that next week. Um, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things are going to break now into his doxology, his final closing. And he's going to, because I mean, after, after describing this glorious work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to set us free, to help us lead lives that are pleasing to God and walk according to the fullness of the, the um, uh, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the Torah and the Spirit of God who causes us to cry, Abba, Father, and come into our hearts and bring us in the family and, and the Spirit uh, uh, who sets us free and helps us to be empowered to say no to the flesh and things like that. Paul's going to do what he do what he does best. He's just going to break forth into praise and worship uh, into the glorious praises of God. And he says, we know that for those who love God, this is what we call the unbroken golden chain of promises, because you link all of these actions together uh, like a domino effect, right? As long as the first domino is um, trustworthy and reliable, the other dominoes are surely going to fall, right? It's inevitable. We know that those who love God, all things work together. But let me just read the passage. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the calling is sure. Therefore, the working together of things that are good is also certain. And he continues, for those whom he foreknew, God foreknew, he also predestined. Notice Paul's linking these um, promises together. That's what we call it the golden chain, because God is the one who's doing it, and God is not impotent. God is not um, um, too weak to make sure that things, these things are going to happen the way that God planned them to happen. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let's continue with this golden chain of promises. Again, we know that the end is certain because the beginning is certain. And from beginning to end, it's all God's work in us and through us and for us and by his spirit. Paul continues in verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And notice the, I, don't, I haven't looked these up just now, but if I remember right, um, the Greek verbs are in the um, uh, future. Maybe we can jump over and look at some of them. Um, those whom he called um, active indicative aorist tense. Uh, I think that is. Uh, and then let's see. He justified active, the AIA active indicative aorist. I'll look that up um, next week. Uh, I don't want to uh, take too much time to look at that right now. But uh, just suffice to say... Um, uh, the way the English impacts us, notice that it's, it's, it's as if it's already happened. Because God who can see the future from the past, right? God can see into the future. He can speak as if it has already happened. Because God is the one who's going to make sure that it will happen. So these things are glorious. And then verse 30, 31, now we get the doxology, I believe. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, right? The whole idea is that... Um, God is all-powerful, and if God is the one who is saying that this is what's going to happen, and he's making sure that it's going to happen, well, then guess what? It's a sure thing. You can, the old, what do we say in, in, in our own modern vernacular? You can take that to the bank, right? right? It's going to happen, because God is the one who's going to make it happen. And so Paul's kind of working with that, right? If God's for us, 
who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. No one can be against us. But in case you didn't realize, uh, Paul's going to explain it to us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us. This is called the Homer language, light from heavy, heavy um, off for, off your tor, off for, for teori, I believe we say um, in the Latin. Uh, he gave his own, uh, gave up his son for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The idea is if God has already given us the best that he can give us, then isn't he going to give us all the other minor things as well? His son is the absolute best that he could give. And so these other things about um, resurrected life, a new life in the spirit, um, you know, glorified bodies and things like that. That's just the the the, the rest that's going to follow that the, the gifts that God is giving to us. That's what I mean by light from heavy, call the homer. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm willing to give you a hundred dollars, well, then obviously I'm willing to give you a dollar. I mean, I'm willing to commit to the bigger thing than then obviously I'm willing to commit to the smaller thing as well. That's what I mean by light from heavy, call the homer, offshore teori and things like that. Uh, and then verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Wait a minute, Paul, didn't you just tell me that it's the Spirit who's interceding? Why are you now telling me that's Jesus who's interceding? Ah, because this is, again, another Trinitarian understanding. I know, I know, I know. All my Unitarian friends and my Oneness Pentecostal friends and my Christadel friends, they're all going to write into me and say, foul, foul, this isn't Trinitarian. This is just, it's the Spirit of God who lives in Christ, who's the Spirit of God who lives in us, who's the very Spirit who's interesting us as just as one Spirit. I know, that's true too. Don't you understand that I believe in one God? not multiple gods, and I believe in one spirit, not multiple spirits. And that's the mystery of the Trinity, is that it is the Spirit of God who is the Spirit of Christ, who is the Holy Spirit, who's interceding for us, and yet it's God, right? So, um, <laughs> follow me. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer, of course, is none of these things. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul continues, no, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors. One translation says we are super conquerors through him who loved us. And then now it's his famous doxology, which I think has been put to music. Verse 38, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, verse 39, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That list is fairly exhaustive, right? Paul just hit all the major. So I often wonder why people would even begin to entertain the idea that we can lose our glorious place in God when God himself is the one not only guaranteeing that we're going to be brought to the goal that God has um, um, designed for us, but Paul assures us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Those who believe that you can lose your salvation would say, ah, the only thing that can separate us from the love of God is we ourselves. But none of those other things, right? You know, death, nor life, nor angels, rulers, things present, things come, nor powers, height, depth, or anything in creation. None of those things can separate us. But my tiny little brain and my tiny little uh, self-will, yeah, it can separate me from the love of God. I think not. And with that, 
we'll draw our study to a close. You can see all the text on the screen there that we've been reading from the ESV, which I don't need to read. So that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the uh, liturgy for tonight. Let's uh, begin to wind down in our study as we've been going just a little bit over. Let's read the um, Omer liturgy first. We've got some English right there on the screen for you. I've got some translated Hebrew just above that if you care to read that. Uh, this is a blessing that Judaism um, goes through before uh, uh, uh Counting the Omer. This is the blessing of the Omer count itself, and we do this at night. So this is the Omer count blessing for uh, uh, Monday night. The English says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the counting of the Omer. And the Hebrew says, Baruch ata Adonai Elohinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotai v'tzivanu al sefirat haomer. Let's drop down now to the actual day that we're counting. In English it says, Today is 37 days, which is five weeks and two days of the Omer. And over on the right side of the page, the Hebrew says, Hayom Shiva Ushloshim Yom Shechem Chamisha Shavuot Ushneyamim La Omer. And that'll do it for the Omer reading blessing. Let's turn now to Ezekiel chapter 36. We've been reading down through this passage for our Omer account. We started in verse 22 a few weeks back, and we're working our way through to about verse 27 or so. So let's read these two verses tonight, verse 26 and 27, and um, we'll continue looking at this as well. We'll even look at some Jeremiah passages next week, perhaps. Ezekiel says, starting in verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, right? This is why we're reading this, because of the, the um, forward-looking view towards Shavuot on the horizon, the celebration of the giving of the words of God at Pentecost, at Sinai, and the um, celebration of the outward spirit in Acts chapter 2, all take place on Shavuot. So we're looking at these spirit passages. I, God says, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And verse 27 says, and I will put my spirit within you. These are promises to corporate Israel. Keep in mind, these are promises that have not come to pass just yet. They're still in the future. And yet, they're something that Israel needs to enjoy. So, future passages. Um, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to do what? Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Does God pour out his Holy Spirit so that the people will turn away from Torah? No. God pours out his Holy Spirit so that we can actually turn into being obedient to him, obedient to his word, and actually obedient to his uh, written word, his Torah. And that's a wonderful thing for us. Let's look at the um, Hebrew over on the uh, right side of the screen there. The Hebrew says, And verse 27 says, And 
And that'll do it for the liturgy from the uh, Tanakh. Let's turn real quick now to the liturgy from the Apostolic Scriptures. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 7. Let's just read verse 7 and 8 tonight. Paul says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then... Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. The Greek over on the uh, right side of the page, starting verse 7, says, Udes gar himon hauto ze kai udes hauto apophneske. Verse 8 says, Iente gar zomen to kurio zomen, Iente apophneskomen to kurio apophneskomen, Iente un zomen Iente apophneskomen to kurio, kurio esmen. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video. And right after the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Tate's Torah Ministries, 2015, all rights reserved. Here's our question for tonight. Why do many worship and do Sabbath on Sunday instead of Saturday? So let's continue talking about the Sabbath type question. FYI, eBible.com actually has two similarly worded Romans 14.5 Sabbath questions on their site. The other one specifically asking, are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? The answer we will study tonight represents but one of those two similarly worded Romans 14.5 questions. So you're going to see verbiage related to, um, are we free to worship God? Things like that. Romans 14.5 reads, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Is Romans 14.5 a Sabbath verse? Well, let's exegete and find out. All still photography used in this video is courtesy of Unsplash.com. In one sense, believers are free to worship God any day of the week, and we should be worshiping Him every day of the week, right? However, our messianic freedom should not separate us, but cause us to, quote, pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding, end quote. That's Romans 14, 19. I'm going to pull a lot of quotes from the, the same chapter, which is Romans 14. I highly encourage you to read the chapter as a whole. Sunday keepers often turn to Romans 14, 5 in support of choosing one day over another. I personally don't believe that this verse allows for such a reading. So let me go through and explain why I don't. I can say that I've studied many varied commentaries on this passage uh, to include Calvin, Murray, Dunn, uh, Lloyd-Jones, Bruce, Barth, Hendrickson, Stulmacher, Cranfield, Nanos, Haig, MacArthur, Stern, Lancaster, Janicki, and some others that I have here on my computer. And in my estimation as a Bible student, Romans 14.5 does not seem like a likely passage teaching freedom from Sabbath worship, viz. It's not a Sabbath versus Sunday passage at all, even though many people interpret it that way because Paul uses the phrase one man uh, esteems one day. I feel that the best way to interpret verse 5 is within the larger context, that is, the entire chapter stands together as a whole. And that would make it a verse about voluntary fast days. And I base my position on a number of historical and textual clues. So let's go through some of those clues. 
Number one, the Sabbath is God's covenant sign to Israel, per Exodus 31.13 and Ezekiel 20, verse 12. The Gentiles grafted into remnant Israel would have had natural association with seventh-day Sabbath worship, read Acts 14.1 and Acts 15.21. Do you understand the impact of that? That's the history of the, ver- of the passage. At the time the book of Romans was written, which was around 55 to 56 CE, official, quote, Sabbath versus Sunday, end quote, debates were not extant. They didn't exist. Sunday would not become the established Christian day of worship until a few hundred years later. So really, we shouldn't be pushing Sunday into this passage at all. It's kind of anachronistic. For Paul to casually recommend in one verse the personal choice to give up seventh-day Sabbath in favor of Sunday worship seems highly unlikely given the weight of received Torah passages like Exodus 31, 16, and 17 and the establishment of Sabbath in the Jewish communities of which the sect known as the Way was a part. Read Acts 24:14. Did you understand what I'm saying here? The Gentiles were part of the Jewish community and Sabbath was already established in the Jewish community. Thousands of Jews believed in Yeshua by the first century and many were zealous for the Torah. Read Acts 21, 20. And this makes a purported, quote, personal allowance to switch from Sabbath to Sunday worship via this first, end quote, a virtual historical improbability. That's the way I see it. In my estimation, if the verse in question were truly about Sabbath versus Sunday, then a number of problematic details begin to arise. So let's keep going on this particular theme. For instance, to leave the decision in the hands of those who, quote, who are, quote, fully convinced in their own mind, end quote, appears to be a weak way to establish congregational bylaws for a leader the likes of Paul. You'd have to agree with me, right? Now, listen to this. These are some very important questions that we need to ask about first century. Jewish and Gentile believers are to rejoice together. We already know that's true per Romans 15.10. But let's ask these questions. How could the newly emerging Messianic communities maintain any unity and group cohesion, per Ephesians 4.13, if we had some folks choosing Sabbath and others choosing Sunday? How could genuine fellowship form in such a setting? And what if the majority is, quote, convinced, end quote, that Sabbath is correct? Should those, quote, unconvinced, end quote, leave and go elsewhere? Or should they ignore their conscience, stay, and yield to the majority vote? See what I'm saying? These are some very important questions that we need to start asking ourselves from a first century perspective where Jews and Gentiles were worshiping together and Paul was wanting them to continue to rejoice together as a group. Was he really just leaving it up to some individuals to make votes? Well, what are our conclusions for tonight's short study? Let's take a look. The early Messianic communities were a sect of Judaism. Read Acts 24:14. Even a surface-level examination of the chapter will show that food and eating topics were the primary context. Read Romans 14, 2, 3, 6, 14, 15, 17, 20, 21, and 23. This would make Romans 14, 5, and 6 about voluntary fast days that some were esteeming, with others not obligating themselves to those voluntary fast days dazed. Did you catch it there? That's probably the better way to read the passage. And within the sometimes heated social setting of the first century Judaisms, of course, issues related to food, special days, and ritual purity were a natural flashpoint for friction between the merging of the Jewish culture and those from the nations who were grafted into remnant Israel. Read Romans 11, 
17 as well as Romans 15 5 through 7. So we've got to take that into account as well is that yes they're going to we're going to have some heated debates between the existing Jewish community and the Gentile communities that are coming in. So we can we can keep that debate among the fast days. We don't have to make it a debate about Sabbath versus Sunday because I think that's a little too early to have that debate. Lastly, regardless of how one interprets Romans 14:5, we can be assured that Paul forbids the weak and the strong from judging and despising each other since they constitute one viable community and are in need of one another. Read Romans 14, 1 through 4, as well as verse 10 and verse 13. And that, in my opinion, is one of the uh, single most important uh, aspects about this particular study. Also, Paul definitely admonishes the strong to welcome Romans 14.1 and bear with the failings of the weak and accommodate their opinions, Romans 15.1, while each is to build the other up, Romans 15.2 and 7, and avoid destroying the work of God for the sake of food, Romans 14.2. That's also the, uh, the, uh, the strong emphasis that Paul's making in this particular passage. The kingdom of God is not about food, all right? Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the short little video. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to have these studies with the students and the challenge that it presents to both me and to those who watch and listen to my studies. Thank you, Lord, for carrying us along. Even though we're so prone to misunderstand, we don't have a perfect understanding of your word, which is why we're going to continue to press in and to apply the, ourselves and to do the hard work of studying and memorizing and meditating and pouring through it. And, and pressing in and allowing your spirit to reveal the words. Help us, Lord, to continue to grow and to make practical application uh, for it is these very words that are going to be the anchor for our soul because these words reveal Messiah Yeshua. He is the word made flesh. It is him in us, Christ in us, that is the hope of glory. And so it's not mere study. It's not just the um, uh, words on the page. Uh, that are going to transform us and change us. It's the activity of the Spirit using those words. It's it's the very real presence and reality of our risen Lord Messiah dwelling in me that causes me to live a life that's pleasing to you, to turn from sin, to, to love my neighbor as myself. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, wonderful and awesome reality that is mine in Messiah. And I'll be uh, careful to give you the praise and glory, but shame Yeshua. Amen. Oh,